0: Thank you. Uh, that's, that's kind of you guys. Oh, I've missed you. I've missed you a lot. It's actually been uh, 10 months since I've stood in this pulpit. The last time I stood here was on April 1st of last year, and it feels like a lifetime ago. So much has happened, but it is so wonderful to look at you guys from this perspective. Uh, thank you for that warm welcome. That That goes a long way in my heart. Thank you very much. All the glory to Jesus Christ. We all know that, but that's that's wonderful love. Thank you. Thank you so much. I uh, want to thank my dear brother Chris Lazo, who has done an extraordinary job as the interim pastor for preaching in my absence. Let's thank him together. I also want to thank the elders and the staff at Reality who have done absolutely wonderful, spirit filled, humble work at leading this church the past 10 months on my leave of absence. And um, you should be so thankful for them. They are such wonderful men and women, and they love you and they've given their lives to you. Let's thank them for a moment. And uh, I just want to thank, real quick, the Carpinteria campus. Since I've uh, been home with my family from Israel since November, I've been just attending church there, sitting in the back row, and uh, being at church there has saved my life. And uh, the Carpinteria campus is where it all started. That's, That's the mothership, and we're all here in Santa Barbara today because of the faithfulness of that campus. So let's thank them and our Ventura campus right now. Carpinteria Campus, Ventura Campus, I love you guys so much. I wish I could be there in person with you today, but uh, at the moment I'm here, but we're all in this together. So let's open up in our Bibles now to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. In the 10 months that I've not preached, I have not kept up on my voice training, and so it appears to already be leaving me, three minutes into speaking. (laughs) Nor have I kept up in any way on my preaching skills, so I beg your pardon if today is uh, somewhat messy and unpolished, but such is my life, and so, so shall my preaching be, and other than the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit, it shan't be much, but we'll trust the Lord. Matthew chapter 10. The title of the sermon is When Sparrows Fall. Matthew chapter 10. We're going to read verses 29 through 31, rather, 28 through 31. Jesus speaking says, And do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you for the gathering of your people who have come to experience your presence, give glory to your name, rejoice in each other's love, and to be built up in the most holy faith by your word and the preaching of it. Thank you, God, that you're alive and that you speak to us, and that your word is alive and it speaks to us. And we don't just read it, it reads us and it transforms our lives. Thank you, God, that you are good and you're sovereign. You're in control. You're faithful. You're merciful. And as Christ was explaining here, you love us and you're with us. And we matter to you. Thank you for these wonderful things. And, Lord, as I speak today with my brothers and sisters and preach a little bit, I have no confidence in the flesh. A couple months ago, Lord, I, I never thought I would stand in this place again. And I would like to think that I'm only here at your beckoning, Holy Spirit. And I believe that I can only do anything of any value to your kingdom and your glory by the anointing of your Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, please anoint me to speak the words of God. Pray that every word that falls from these lips would be from your throne and for your glory, and for the building up of the church, and that your joy and your peace might be made manifest in our lives and in our world. So speak to us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, the title of this sermon is When Sparrows Fall, but it's not just a sermon. It's really a bit of an update on what's been going on with our family and our journey as of late. Ten months ago, three days before Easter, my eight-year-old daughter, Daisy Love, was diagnosed with cancer for the third time, as you guys know. And we underwent some treatment at that time, chemotherapy and surgery, and then, as you know, we, we left in August for Israel. And we're in Israel from August to November seeking alternative treatment treatments not available in the U.S., immunotherapy and a cancer vaccine and all sorts of different stuff. So we spent a few months over there doing that. And then we got home in mid-November. And then just six weeks ago, on December 14th, I was with the elders, and we were in Carpinteria, and we were fasting and praying, seeking the Lord as He's entrusted us to lead this church. And my wife called me, And she said, Daisy doesn't seem well. I called the oncologist, and he wants us to come in right away. So I left the time of prayer and fasting with the elders, and we went to the hospital, cottage hospital, and met with the oncologist and began to do tests. And we found out that day that Daisy was going to be diagnosed for the fourth time with cancer, this time with two tumors, both of them inoperable, one the size of a large grapefruit, the other about the size of a golf ball since that time, we've spent 35 days in the hospital. She's undergone more chemotherapy. And now it's been three years and four months that we've been fighting cancer. She's had almost 30 rounds of chemo, little Daisy has. Six major surgeries. All sorts of radiation. And now a whole battery of alternative treatments in Israel. It's been a long road, but the last 10 months since I last saw all of you has been the most difficult part for our family, by far the most difficult time of our lives, and so much has happened. As I said, it feels like a lifetime ago, and I honestly don't even feel like the same person, but in that 10 months, the most difficult time of our lives, we have experienced so much of God's grace and presence, and I'm here today to merely testify of the grace and the presence of God in the midst of difficulties. I want to share just a few moments, a few profound lessons that Kate and I and the kids have learned, particularly in the last couple months. The reason that the elders and I thought it would be wise to share these things with you is because they involve you. And they involve you because we feel so incredibly loved and supported by all of you. I I don't think of our battle with cancer, and I don't think of my life with God, and I don't think of anything apart from you guys and your love and your support. So this story involves you, very much so. It also involves you because you're a generous church. You've been very generous to allow me this time of a leave of absence. To trust the Lord in that. To give that as a gift to my family. To stick with my family and to stick with reality through what's been the most difficult time of our history without question. You've supported in prayer. You've supported in gesture. You've supported in giving. Our family is so thankful for that. And these things also involve you because... Kate and I have been called by Christ to give our lives to you, reality. We have been called by Christ to give our lives to you in love, in service, in leading, in teaching, and preaching, and for better or for worse, by example. And as we give you our lives... It has to include the last three and a half years of our battle with cancer. For that has become, to a certain extent, our lives. The new normal for us is childhood cancer. It is a daily battle. It's living in the difficulty of unknowns and uncertainties. See ups and downs, victories, heartbreaks, sweet moments, pain, fear, darkness, hope and faith of all that we've experienced feel compelled to share some of those things with you. So what I want to do primarily is one thing. I want to testify to this. I want to testify of our Heavenly Father's wonderful, saving presence in our lives. Our Heavenly Father's wonderful, rescuing presence in our lives. In hopes that when your life is difficult, when you're facing times of uncertainty, overwhelming odds, difficulties, darkness, that you'll be inspired to remember the promise of Scripture, that the Father is with you. And in those times, that would be for you, as it has been for my family and I, enough. To know that your Father who loves you is with you and he sustains and holds you in the darkest hours of your time here on earth. That's what Jesus is getting at in this pericope, in this little section of scripture here. He explains the Father's caring presence wonderfully in these few verses. Let's get a hold of the context for a moment. Jesus is going to send his disciples out on a little mission trip. We'll read verse 1 of chapter 10. It says, And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then it names the 12 apostles. And then it says in verse 5, These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. So he's been investing in them. He's been instructing them. He now gives them spiritual authority over demons, sickness, and death. And he sends them out on a little mission trip. And before they go, he says, Oh, by the way, let me give you a little bit of what's in store for your life on mission. We get a little bit of that in verse 16. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Be aware of men, for they will deliver you up to the, court, to the courts, excuse me, and scourge you in their synagogues. Verse 22, he continues, "And you will be hated by all on account of my name." Oh great. Okay, this sounds good, Jesus. So we think you're the Messiah. We're following you around. We're seeing you do these amazing miracles. Now you're investing us with authority, the likes of which Israel has never seen, and you're sending us out as your representatives on a little mission trip. And by the way, everyone's going to hate you. You'll be arrested. Some of you will be killed. Life on mission with God. Welcome to being a Christian. And then he says in verse 28, but do not fear those who can kill the body. You got to see the insanity of this. Right? Jesus looks like he's really the king. He's really the Messiah. He's really the promised one. And these are really his dudes. But they're going to go out and it's going to cost him everything. It's going to mean absolute, in a worldly sense, ruin. You'll be beaten. You'll be scorched. You'll be arrested. You'll be mocked. You'll be persecuted. And everyone's going to hate you. But don't be afraid. Look at the insanity of that. Everyone's going to hate you. It's going to cost your life. But don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Jesus says in verse 28, instead, fear God. Don't fear those who can kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God, don't fear circumstances. Fear God, don't fear people. Fear God, don't fear pain. Fear God, don't fear death. Fear God, don't fear what they might do to you. Fear God, don't fear rejection. He says in an interesting way fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell. Kind of strong language. In the New Living Translation, it says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body, they can't touch your soul. Fear only God. The idea being, he's the one who's greater. Exemplified by the phrase, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. People can only do so much to you. But God is far greater. He holds eternity in his hands. Let me explain what Jesus is getting at here and how he's getting at it. Fear only God, he says. The issue that Jesus is teaching, rather what Jesus is teaching is that the issue is not other people and what they can do to you. The issue of life is not other people and what they may do to you. Or your own mortality, that's not the issue. Or your own frailty. The issue is not our bodies, nor their failure, nor sickness or disease. It's not pain, it's not suffering, it's not even death. That isn't the issue. It's not the tough things of life, the unjust things of life, or the unfair things of life. It's not the circumstances that overwhelm us. These are not the issues. All of these things will happen to you in this world. You will have trouble, Jesus says to his followers. But these are not the main issue. These are not the things of eternity. Which is what he's getting at when he references the soul in hell. He's getting. It. He's trying to make the disciples think about the things of eternity. Don't be overwhelmed by the mere temporal circumstances, as bad as they are. I want you to think about eternal things, and let it bring you to the fear of God. So then, what is Jesus teaching? What is the issue when times are hard, when life hurts? When things are messy and seem out of control. When all is unfair, unkind, and seems to be ending badly. What is the issue? And what does it mean to not be afraid? That's ludicrous. What does it mean to not be afraid? And what does it mean to fear God in those times? Jesus explains, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. I love the way Jesus teaches. You know, he just talks about trees and bushes and birds and crops and water and fishies and stuff like that. He says a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground. Apart from your father, there's the phrase that changes everything. Apart from your father, therefore do not fear. He doesn't say that a sparrow will never fall. He says the sparrows will fall. Christ and Scripture are very, very forthright. Bad things happen, even to innocent little birds. Bad things happen, tragic, unfair, senseless things happen in this world and in our lives. That's just the way it is. What he's saying is they do not happen apart from your Father who is in heaven. Bad things happen, but they do not happen apart from your Father. God is never absent from the equation. As the NIV puts that phrase, spare will not fall outside of your father's care. Bad things happen, but it never means that your heavenly father doesn't care. That's not what those things communicate. Now, in trying to get to the point of what Jesus is teaching here, we have to realize what he isn't teaching. What he's not saying. What he isn't dealing with is the question of Why? He's not addressing that at all. Nor is he addressing the complex issues of the sovereignty of God here. When a sparrow falls, does God make the sparrow fall? Did God flick the little sparrow? What where's God when the sparrow falls? What, what is He's not talking about that. Nor is he answering asking or answering the question why. And certainly the disciples would have been thinking why? As Jesus explained to them the imminent danger, the injustice, and the death they would face in merely serving Christ, certainly they would be tempted to say, if we we're just obeying the Messiah and doing the works of God and being on mission for him, why would we be arrested and scourged and rejected and even put to death? Why? What horrific things that would destroy our lives and our families and break our hearts. Why? Certainly they'd be asking that question. Don't overestimate the disciples at this point. Don't think for a moment that they had some developed theology of suffering for the kingdom. These bozos are no Apostles Paul. Not by any stretch of the imagination, okay? This is pre-resurrection, pre-Holy Spirit coming on the church. Don't give them too much credit here. They're thinking, why would that happen? They've got no developed theology of suffering. In fact, a few chapters later, Matthew 16, when Jesus tells them about his own suffering, they'll reject the idea altogether. And then when Jesus does begin to suffer on the day that he's crucified, they'll abandon him altogether. Not one of them will stick with him. No, they don't see anything Noble in suffering, nor do they have any noble thoughts at this point. They've just been told that in obeying Jesus, they will not be immune to hardship. They may be able to deal with demons and sickness and disease, but they themselves will not be immune to the works of such. For them, life is going to hurt. And they are going to want to know why. Why would God allow that? Why does an innocent bird fall from the sky? Why does my husband leave? Why did my finances crumble? Why didn't that promotion happen? Why did my friend betray me? Why do I have this chronic illness? Why does that happen in our society? Why does my daughter have cancer? They wanted to know, you can be sure. And we want to know why. And Jesus is fully aware of their desire and our desire to know the answer as to why. He knows that as he's speaking to them, it's hanging in the air. That's why he tells them what he tells them. He knows that's hanging there. It's the elephant in the room. You're going to be killed when you obey me. He knows what's hanging in the air. is a question why. And he does not deal with it. He ignores it altogether. doesn't say a single word about it. Suppose for a moment that Jesus or Scripture were to tell us why. When the worst things in the world happen, suppose that they, you, I knew the answer. Would that make the pain of life any more bearable? Does why fix the broken heart? There are, I assume, I trust, good answers. But they're not given to us in Scripture. Nor are they supplied by Jesus. We can ruminate about the nature of evil and the existence of evil and why bad things happen to good people on and on and on. But there are no definitive, satisfactory answers given to us by Christ or Scripture. Oh, of course, of course, sin, sin. Yes, 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 we understand that. And the very pious would say, well, for God's glory. For God's glory. Yes, I I understand that. But shall we not feel a little more deeply? If God is good and I believe him to be good, if God is sovereign and all-powerful as I believe him to be, then could he not bring glory to himself in some way other than An eight-year-old girl who's has cancer for the fourth time. You see, the, the why question is not so easily answered. Because it isn't the right question. That's why Jesus doesn't deal with it here. It's hanging in the air. It's on everyone's mind. But it's not the question to which he wants to draw their attention. Rather, he points us to the real answer to our current pain, injustice, and suffering. He gives us something that saves us from the endless trouble of why. He says, not a single sparrow will fall to the ground apart from your father. And in that moment, he redirects the question to stop being why, and it now becomes who. Not why do bad things happen, but rather who is present with us as they happen. He changes the question for humanity altogether. It's not about why, it's about who. Not a single sparrow will fall apart from your father being there. I'm talking about suffering to the disciples whom Jesus loves so much. He isn't addressing the issue of why. Rather, he makes the issue one of God's presence. The issue is one of God's presence. You guys are going to suffer and die, he says. Innocent birds are going to suffer and die. All is not well in the fallen world. But none of you will suffer and die and not even a single bird will fall from the sky without the Father's care. Whenever a bird hits the deck, the Father is there. That's what Christ is holding forward to these men who will experience so much pain. Death comes by natural laws, but it never comes apart from the presence of our Heavenly Father. Therefore, he says, do not fear. The insanity of that statement. The insanity of empowering them to do radical, demon vanquishing. Illness, illness, sickness, disease, healing ministry. And then to tell them that it's going to cost them everything and that they'll suffer and die. And then to say, don't be afraid. Because when it happens, Daddy will be there. It's all he's saying. Apparently, in the mind of Christ, the presence of the Father is enough. The presence of the Father is enough for our deepest places of pain. I wasted two months this summer wandering on Mount Carmel as I told you my family went to Israel in August and we were seeking treatment for Daisy there. And so there's this cancer clinic that we were going to sometimes every day of the week, sometimes every other day and all sorts of treatments, immunotherapy and a cancer vaccine they developed for her and taking cells out of my body and giving it to hers to try to rebuild her immune system, all this cutting edge stuff they can't do in the United States. And, uh, Taking my family to Israel was a wonderful experience. We were very hopeful about the treatment. We were excited about our time together. I had the once-in-the-lifetime opportunity of touring my family through Israel. It Just me, Kate, Isaiah and Daisy. We went to every single Bible stop in that country. We drove every single road in Israel. It was beautiful. You, you should have seen my 12-year-old son, Isaiah. You should have seen his mind blown as we sat at the empty tomb and opened the scriptures. As we went to Golgotha where Christ was crucified and we read the account, you should have seen his mind as we sat in the olive trees of the Garden of Gethsemane and read the account. You should have seen him as we walked the Temple Mount in the streets of Jerusalem. Should have seen Daisy's face as we swam in the Sea of Galilee together, as she tried to walk on water. (laughs) So thankful for that experience. Should have seen my son's faith grow as he opened up the Bible where it happened. Blew his little 12-year-old mind. Daisy had been struggling with her faith quite a bit before we left, I'll be honest with you as I've struggled with mine in the last 10 months. She wasn't sure whether or not she really believed, and she wasn't sure whether or not she should follow Jesus. And she was open, mom and daddy, about talking about this. we open about talking about spiritual things. And it's okay to doubt and to struggle. You lie if you say you don't. Faith requires some degree of doubt, doesn't it? She was real open about that. And when we were in Israel, we went and visited a church where our missionary, Jill, attends church. And it's right inside of the Jaffa Gate um, in the old city of Jerusalem. It's the oldest Protestant church in the Middle East. And we visited that church, and uh, the kids were with us. And, you know, very different from our church. It was liturgical, you know what I mean? There's like robes and like things you read and say and you sit up and you you stand up, excuse me, and you sit down and go through this liturgy. It was very beautiful. And and the sermon was brilliant. One of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard. And at the end of it, Daisy leans over to her mom and I and she says, I've decided I believe and I'm going to follow Jesus. That was, yeah, go ahead if you're going to go ahead. That was the kind of amazing, unforgettable stuff that was happening in Israel. Uh, got great surf in Israel, by the way. My <laughs> son and I surfed every day for the first month and a half. Got good waves. Uh, got an absolutely vicious tan, the whole family. Unbelievable. You know, air was like 95. Water was like 85. It was beautiful. And then the last couple of months, we moved to this little city right at the base of the mountain range. that makes up Mount Carmel, right where it meets the sea. And, uh, you know, we were looking at coming home soon, and quite frankly, though we were going through treatments with Daisy, she wasn't looking very well. Uh, seemed like her health was deteriorating. We had suspicions. It's not our first rodeo with cancer. We, we were nervous about it, and I was struggling. I was having a hard time, such a hard time that I took up running. Those of you that know me know I must really be in a bad way if I'm running, <laughs> And uh, sometimes up to two times a day, I would just take off and run for an hour and a half at a time. And I was running in the wilderness of Mount Carmel, just off in the mountains. And uh, saw like jackals and ibex and uh, all these animals that you read about in the Bible. Like actually saw them. And there I am wandering where Elijah exercised such great faith. And I would go out into the wilderness and I would stand in open fields and I'd cry out on God. And heaven went silent to me. Come on, God. I'm in Israel. Like I'm here. I'm in the place like where Elijah prayed and it began to rain and, and where the prophets of Baal were defeated and where all this stuff happened. Here I am. I expect you to be here. If you're anywhere, you got to be here. And heaven went silent to Britt Merrick for two months. And I came home with a severe case of depression. I've never really been depressed before. I've seen it. I was depressed in the truest sense of the word. I mean, some of you know what that means. Some of you don't. I just, man, the wheels just came off. Stuff hit the fan. I came home and was in a tough spot. And after being home for a couple of weeks, my wife sat me down one Sunday evening and she said here's the deal honey I'm not going to make it with you being like this. Again Daisy seemed to be deteriorating we were nervous about that and she could barely walk at this point hadn't yet been re-diagnosed she sat me down that Sunday evening she said you need to get your stuff together. <sighs> if you guys know what depression is like you can't just Turn it on and off. It was the kind of depression where it was hard for me to get out of bed. You know, I'm supposed to be somewhere. It took me an hour and a half to brush my teeth. But when my bride looked me in the eyes and said, you better get it together, man, or I'm not going to make it. I said, I'm going to get it together. So I woke up the next morning. I said, okay, what's, wow, man, God isn't talking to me. He's not helping me. how how am I going to pull this off? How am I going to climb my way out of this pit? I said, I know what I'll do. I'll do chores. Always helps me. I don't know if that's your gig. Me, if I do physical labor, it just helps me body, soul, mind, spirit, everything. I just said, okay, I'm going to do chores. It's hard for me to get out of bed. I can't even brush my teeth, but I'm going to do chores. So I made a list of chores. And the first chore was, I had built my son a skate ramp at our house some time ago, and this tree was hanging over it and dropping all these leaves on it. And he said, Dad, I want you to trim that tree and fix it so I can skate my ramp without all these leaves on it. So the first chore was, climb up this tree and trim it. So I got up that morning, I put on my Wranglers, and I put on my boots. Yes, I have Wranglers and boots. And I went out there and I got a saw and I climbed up in the tree and I said I'm going to get out of this pit and I'm going to fix this tree and it's all going to happen for me. Come on, son, let's do this. Watch daddy. And I climbed up in the tree and I started to cut and I fell from the tree. It's pretty high. We lived near this horse property and I fell and on this this big wooden fence and broke through the fence with my ribs. Injured my ribs, hurt my ankle, laying there on the ground, couldn't breathe, couldn't feel much, said, Isaiah, go get your mom. Kate came out and looked at me and said, this, this is not what I had in mind. Okay, bro, this is not getting it together. This, you're not helping. But no, no, honey, I'm getting it together. I swear, I'm good. I'm good. And I, I, I went and laid down on the couch and my ankle swelled up to about that big. Not exaggerating. Now I do like to exaggerate, but I'm not exaggerating. My ankles like this big, uh, unbearable, unbearable pain, pains. And I started to go to that place of see God. Why? You you gotta be kidding me. After all we've been through, you you must have heard what my wife said last night. You can't give me the grace to trim a flipping tree. This is too much to add. I just want to trim a tree. Okay, I just want to climb out of this depression and trim a tree and look and say, okay, I trimmed a tree. We're going to be all right. God, you got, you got to be kidding me. You got to be kidding me. I started to go there in my mind. And then I, ne- I woke up the next morning. I started puking blood. They rushed me to the hospital. I got admitted to the hospital. Spent a couple days in the hospital. As I laid there in the hospital, God's grace fell on me. All of a sudden, God's grace fell on me. All of a sudden, the depression was gone, the anger so angry, so mad at God, so mad at the world, so mad at cancer. The anger was gone. The despondency was gone. And God's grace just fell on me. In in such a way that when I tell the story, I say this, I climbed up a tree and God pushed me out. And somehow his grace fell on me. When I fell from the tree, God's grace fell on me. Here's why I think God did that because a couple days after I got out of the hospital, we were back in the hospital with Daisy and she was re-diagnosed for the fourth time. And if God's gracious presence hadn't been with me, I don't, know, I don't know how I would have dealt with that. And so now Kate and I are in the hospital with Daisy and they're running the tests and the doc, she's laying in the hospital bed and the doctor comes in and says, hey, let's go in the other room and talk. That's, that's never good. Right, we've been there a lot of times. When the doctor says, let's go in the other room. So we go in the other room and he explains to us, okay, there's a new tumor and then there's a second tumor and one's really big and this and that and they're inoperable. And he begins to tell us not just the diagnosis but the prognosis. Which is worst case scenario. And he tells us this. He says, Here are your options. We can do this, this, and that. But perhaps the best option is to just go home. Make Daisy as comfortable as we can for a while. And then he left the room, and Kate and I just came unglued, you know, just started crying, weeping. Just started praying, just praying out to God. We're praying. And God gave us grace at that moment. And we looked at each other and we said, here's the deal. From now on, we're not going to ask why. We're only going to ask God to be with us. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that the reason that heaven went silent to me on Mount Carmel was because the consuming question on my heart was, why, God? Why is Daisy getting worse? Why are we here and it isn't working? Why could this happen to this innocent little sparrow? Why is this sparrow falling? Why? And as long as I demanded to know why, heaven was quiet. And the moment Kate and I said, we're going to stop asking why and we're just going to ask you to be with us, God, heaven opened up. I'd been asking the wrong question. I was such a fool. I've been asking the wrong question. It wasn't about why, it was about who. And since that moment now, there's been a fresh infilling of the gracious presence of God in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. We do. But we know now that God is with us. And even through the 35 days in the hospital, we've just had God's presence that's given us peace and even at moments, some joy in the midst of all of it. And what we're discovering is what Jesus was teaching in this passage. That God's presence is enough to sustain us. The issue is that God is present when tough things happen and that we trust him with the outcome. I was holding Kate's hands in that room and I was crying out, God, you have to be with us. You have to be with us. You have to be with us. And Kate had her phone, I didn't have a phone, and, and she got a text. And I grabbed her phone and I looked, and uh, one of our elders' wives had sent her a text at that moment. And the text said, I think Jesus wants me to send you this verse right now. And it was Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And I turned to Kate with tears in my eyes and I said, God just answered us. We were just saying, be with us, be with us, be with us. And he sent us a text saying, I am with you. It was a text message from God through this girl, but from God. Jesus says, don't don't be afraid of what can kill you. Cancer is not the thing to fear. Fear God. This is what it means to fear God. To fear God is to revere, respect, honor, extol, and trust him enough to believe by faith, that he is good, sovereign, and present when life is hard, cruel, and out of control. That's what it means to fear God. And then to honor him in that way. You see, life is always going to present things that will incite fear, right? Illness, impending death, rejection, financial hardships, failure, loneliness, abandonment, the unknown, loss of control. And when these things happen, we have a choice. To either fear God or fear everything else. And to fear God at the very minimum means to trust him. when Everything around you is saying he can't be trusted. Faith in the face of pain is this. Trusting God's goodness despite any apparent evidence against it. One old saint said this, a living faith is nothing else than a steadfast pursuit of God through all that disguises, disfigures, demolishes, and seeks, so to speak, to abolish him. Pursuing God even when everything around you would say he isn't there. To pursue God and not merely to pursue Answers or a desired outcome. That's where I went wrong. You see, I'm, I'm testifying today as one who did it so wrong and had to get thrown from a tree. I had to get a text message from God before I could see I was asking all the wrong questions. It's not looking for answers or resolution or desired outcome. It's looking for God whom Christ says is present in our pain. None of it happens apart from your Father. See, in the most difficult times of life, we want clarity. In the most difficult times of life, God wants our trust. And those two things are in opposition to one another. We want clarity. God wants our trust. And rather than giving us answers, which Scripture doesn't promise, and which wouldn't suffice anyway, He wants to give us Himself, which Scripture promises, and which is sufficient for every difficulty that we face. What I realized was that I wasn't pursuing God himself. I was pursuing, I was demanding answers from God. And at some point, we have to realize our puny status as creatures and not creator. Are we to assume that even if God were to explain it to us, that we could comprehend his infinite purposes? See, I was pursuing answers, which isn't to trust, nor is it to fear him. Don't fear all these things; fear God. Why? Because wherever there's something that might make you afraid, your Father is there, and He cares. And His presence—not the answers as to why—are the remedy. Is the remedy that Scripture holds forward for fear over and over again? I want to end by just reading these couple of verses. You, you remember the imperative indicative paradigm that we have, right? That an imperative is a command. An indicative is a statement of fact. Whenever Scripture gives us a command, an imperative, it backs it up with an indicative, a statement of fact that bolsters it, that undergirds it, that makes it a gospel issue and not merely an issue of law, right? So, in Scripture, the imperative or the command, do not be afraid, which is so absurd in this life is always connected with the indicative statement of fact, I am with you. The command, do not fear, is always connected to the promise, I am with you. It is never connected to the promise, and I will explain it to you, mijo, don't worry. I'll explain everything. As if God needed to explain himself to us. I'm sorry, God. He doesn't. The command, do not fear, is always connected with the promise, I will be with you, Deuteronomy 21. When you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt is with you. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Isaiah 41.10, again, do not fear, for I am with you. Isaiah 43, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Do not fear, for I am with you. This imperative, indicative paradigm, this divine reasoning, is exactly what Jesus is presenting as a question of why hangs in the air. Jesus moves us to this logic. The reason that we don't have to be afraid is because nothing hard happens apart from our Father's care. So we, we can't accuse God anymore of not caring. Jesus said that's not true. He always cares. He's always present. And His presence proves that He cares. And it soothes our fears. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. It's the only answer to that question. I'm in the valley of shadow of death. I won't fear evil. Why? For thou art with me. And Jesus is the ultimate expression and proof of God's desire to be with us. Christ ends The wondering whether or not God cares, whether or not he's present, once and for all. Because Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. And the cross of Christ proves that whatever is happening to us, it isn't because God doesn't love us. Stop asking that, that question's settled. The cross proves that God loves you, beyond explanation. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us, the cross of Christ finishes the question whether or not God loves us. The resurrection of Christ proves that whatever is happening to us, it is an ultimate because death doesn't have the final say. Christ conquered the grave and he lives and he's coming again. He has the final say. Whatever's happening to you now is not ultimate. There's coming a resurrection. There's coming an undoing of everything that is wrong. The ascension of Christ proves that whatever is happening isn't outside his control for he ascended and is exalted seated on high at the right hand of the Father ruling and reigning until he comes again. The Holy Spirit of Christ proves that whatever is happening to us, it isn't apart from the Father's presence. For the Spirit is in us as the gift of the Father, testifying that we are children of the Father and causes us to say, Abba, Father. God's presence with us. And the gospel of Christ proves that whatever failures we have, and there are many, they don't exclude us from the caring presence of God. Of the Father the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we have been brought to God that he is with us and that's enough Daisy is home now it's kind of hospital at home you know she's hooked up to an IV and round-the-clock care she can she can barely walk and she's got pain and She's got another scan on Tuesday. Barring a miracle from God, which we believe in and are praying for every day, we know what the scan will say. We know what our options are at that point. There, There aren't really any. But the Father is with us and he's allowing us to enjoy every moment that we have with her. The pain and the fear of this life is not bigger than the love and the presence of the Father. His presence by grace is allowing us to have faith rather than fear. Not faith in a certain outcome. We're not putting our hope in a certain outcome. We're putting our hope in a certain someone. That he is with us even unto the end. And when the end comes, we shall be with him forevermore. And that is enough. Amen? Thank you, Jesus, for these promises. You yourself said you'd never leave us or forsake us. And Lord, I know that in this room there's all kinds of pain and fear and hurt, and many are dismayed. And we just want to hear you say afresh: none of this happens apart from the Father. And so, Holy Spirit, come and manifest the presence of the Father in our midst. Cry out within us afresh, Abba, Father. Testify again that we are children of the God who loves us and cares and is there. And we want to say together by faith, that's enough. Give us the grace to say that, Lord. Give us the grace to say that. Thank you that the cross of Christ proves that. His body broken for us and His blood poured out for us proves that the Father loves us and is present. As we come and take communion today, seek the Father of the presence. Seek the presence of the Father. And remember the cross of Christ. And God will meet us here.